Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime. I'm your host Lizzie and this is the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. And today is episode 10. It's our first mini milestone so we're very excited to have reached it. And I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who's been listening so far. We've been uh, really pleased with the response to the podcast. And so today we're going back to the early 1900s and we're going to be looking at the life and crimes of Dr. Crippen. We'll begin today's episode with the old adage, looks can be deceiving, because in 1910, Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen and his wife Cora seemed to have it all. Dr. Crippen was a medical doctor and Cora an active member of the Music Hall Ladies Guild but behind closed doors, things were not as they seemed. To the outside world, they had the perfect life. They were in love and they were wealthy, but behind closed doors, their lives were filled with affairs and secrets. And everything comes to a head behind these doors of 39 Hilldrop Crescent in London. But let's pause and take a moment and go back to the beginning. In 1862, Holly Harvey Crippen was born in Coldwater, Michigan. He attends the Cleveland Homeopathic Hospital College and receives his degree, after which he relocates to New York and weds Charlotte Bell, a future nurse. Unfortunately, that marriage won't last because Charlotte dies from a stroke in Salt Lake City in January of 1892. She's survived by her husband, Dr. Crippen, and their little boy named Otto. Crippen doesn't particularly enjoy being a single father, so he sends his son to live with his parents in California while he travels back to New York. And six months later, Crippen will meet another woman, and her name is Kanigi Maximozzi, then only 19 years old, at Brooklyn Clinic, where he was the assistant physician. Kanigi will later change her name to Cora Turner, and the two do eventually get married in the fall of 1892. Now, she's an aspiring artist, and she'll go by the stage name of Belle Elmore and had huge aspirations to become a successful actress. For the rest of the podcast, just for clarity's sake, I'll refer to Cora as Belle. So seven years later, the pair will move to London, And while Cora, now going by Belle, wanted to be a music hall performer, unfortunately, it's said that she simply had no talent whatsoever, Uh, so not really an option for her. And he worked as a representative for Munyon's Remedies, a company that produced homeopathic medicines. It's said that Belle was a very dominant and aggressive person. Crippen had first supported her efforts to pursue a career as an opera singer, and one that didn't pan out as a music hall performer, but she achieved very little. She really only succeeded in obtaining a few industry acquaintances and the job of treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild in London as a result of her career. In September of 1905, uh, Crippen and his wife will lease a home at 39 Hilldrop Crescent in Holloway. This decision is made in part to allow the couple to have separate bedrooms. Crippen would later say that Belle had never really been a particularly sexual person and that their physical interactions ended around 1907. Crippen, on the other hand, decided that wasn't okay with him, so he finds a new love. 
And this new love's name was Ethel, and she worked as a typist for Crippen. And Crippen and Ethel will start dating around the same time that he stopped having any physical relation with Belle. And their relationship continues until 1910. Some sources say that members of the Music Hall Ladies Guild tell Belle about Dr. Crippen and Ethel. Um, But the couple doesn't react how you think they would. Uh, Or particularly, Belle doesn't react. uh, Because she simply continues to host friends and they carry on their lives as though they're a happily married couple. So while many people know of the affair, they still carry on the facade as though nothing has changed. But again, it's a different story behind closed doors. And they weren't particularly friendly when no one was looking. According to a servant named Rhoda Ray, the couple seldom even spoke at home. But again, they did continue to host friends and live a decently normal social life as a married couple. And the Crippens would host Paul and Clara Martinetti in their home on January 31st, 1910. And according to Young in his book, The Trial of H.H. Crippen, In her later testimony, Clara Martinetti would describe the evening as follows. There was no servant in the house. Mrs. Crippen herself cooked the dinner, and I helped to serve it. After dinner, we went to their parlor, which was above the room which we had just left, and began our game of whist. I helped Mrs. Crippen to clear away the dinner things, and we spent the evening playing cards, and we left about half past one. It was quite a nice evening. But that evening when Mrs. Martinetti said goodbye to Belle, she had no idea it would be the final time that she would see her. Later, on February 1st, Dr. Crippen will visit the Martinetti's apartment to check on Paul, who had complained of feeling ill the day before. And when Clara Martinetti asks about Belle, the doctor said, oh, she's doing fine. And Clara then requested that, you know, give Belle my love. After promising to do so, Dr. Crippen simply left. And it's over the next week that Belle's friends really begin to wonder where she is. Members of the Music Hall Ladies Guild notice Belle's absence at a meeting on February 2nd, and they all send Guild Secretary Melinda May to her home to inquire about it. When she arrives at the house, uh, she's greeted by Ethel and handed a letter, but that letter isn't even in Belle's handwriting. So things are very suspicious. I want to pause here just for a second because Belle has now mysteriously disappeared and when her friends get worried and try and find her, they're greeted by Dr. Crippen's mistress who's suddenly in the home. Now major warning bells should be going off right now because Dr. Crippen says his wife was in such a hurry to leave that he has to write this letter himself at her request. And you're probably wondering, well, what did the letter even say? Well, I'll tell you, because according to Nicholas Connell in his book, Dr. Crippen, the infamous London cellar murder of 1910, the letter stated, an illness of a near relative has called me to America on only a few hours notice. So I must ask you to bring my resignation as treasurer before the meeting today. And now remember, this was way before cell phones, even telephones in every home. And so a letter might not be overly suspicious as a way to communicate that you had to leave town. But we'll just file this away in the back of our minds as the first major red flag. 
And it will only be a few weeks later when Crippen brings Ethel with him to the dinner and ball of the Benevolent Fund. And here it's noticed that she's actually sporting some of Belle's most prominent jewelry. And well, the gossip truly begins because Ethel moves into the Crippen home on Hilltop Crescent by the end of February. In a letter to the Martinettis dating March 20th, Dr. Crippen explains that Belle had come down with double pleuro pneumonia, and then Dr. Crippen sends Claire Martinetti a telegraph on March 24th, informing her that Belle had died the day before. He then informs guild members that she passed away at his relative's home in LA. However, the story does change, uh, and later he'll tell people that she dies in San Francisco. The guild ladies are beyond stunned, but they want to do what's right for their friend. So they asked to send a wreath for the grave if Crippen could provide the address. Well, Crippen states that's simply not possible because she was cremated and her remains are being sent back to London. But the women could place their wreath after the urn arrives. Well, that did absolutely nothing to calm anyone's suspicions because... Not only does Belle mysteriously leave town, now she's mysteriously dead. Someone alerts Scotland Yard, and in July, Detective Inspector Walter Dew goes to speak with Crippen. But what he finds is Ethel, alone in the home. So together, they travel to Dr. Crippen's office. And in this interview, Crippen changes his story once again. Now he claims that Belle had actually left him for Bruce Miller, an American real estate agent who had formerly worked in the music hall industry. He also vows that he will get in touch with his now not dead wife so she can verify the claim. And according to Edmund Pearson's article, The Case of Dr. Crippen, Dew also does a preliminary search of the home and is almost entirely satisfied afterwards. He believes the claim is true and nothing in the house suggests anything other than what Crippen has said. The case seems closed, but Dr. Crippen and Ethel have been spooked. Things now happen extremely quickly. The following day, on July 9th, Dr. Crippen removed his uh, characteristic mustache, so he shaves, and he travels to Brussels with Ethel, who's dressed as a boy. They purchase tickets to Canada, travel to Antwerp, and then board the SS Montrose, posing as father and son. What they don't know is that Inspector Dew makes the decision to go back to the home around three days later to ask a few follow-up questions. It's then that he discovers that Crippen and Ethel had fled London. Because of this, the police decide to do another search of the home. And it's in this search that they find a brick that could be raised from beneath a wood pile in the cellar floor. So he raises it, makes a few more adjustments, and then they start digging in the ground below. And Dew comes upon something very unpleasant, according to the chief of the criminal investigation department. And what they find are body parts, specifically only limbs, no head, uh, and the head's never been located. Even the sex of the deceased uh, could not be immediately ascertained. It seemed nearly impossible that they'd be able to make any sort of identification. Some sources state uh, that the body is wrapped in a male pajama jacket, which is later identified as belonging to Crippen. 
They also find traces of poison that Crippen had purchased not long before Bell disappeared. We'll go more into detail on these a little later, but on July 16th, Scotland Yard sends a warning asking people to keep an eye out for two fugitives. It's at this point that Ethel and Crippen are on board the Montrose, and they're disguised as a father and son. But they made a few mistakes. They appeared to be overly affectionate with one another and held hands all the time. And to top it all off, uh, the boy, Ethel's attire, just didn't fit him properly. So the captain of the ship, Captain Kendall, telegrammed uh, or telegraphed a telegram to Scotland Yard due to his suspicions. And so Dew boarded the SS Laurentic, a speedier ship, and the pursuit begins. Inspector Dew arrives in advance of the Montrose uh, and is able to detain Crippen and Ethel. He later claims that he had never in his life had such a sense of victory and accomplishment. And all of them were transported back to Quebec by the Montrose along with a swarm of media. Afterwards, Ethel and Crippen are sent back to England to stand trial only three weeks later. It's decided that the pair would stand trial separately as opposed to trying them together. Ethel would appear in court to be tried as an accessory to murder once Crippen finishes with his trial and the verdict is announced. As a result, Crippen appeared alone in the dock at the Old Bailey on October 18th before Lord Alverstone, the Lord Chief Justice of England. The trial would go on until October 22nd. And now Crippen's defense for why body parts were discovered in his cellar during the trial was that they must have been buried there prior to him even owning the home. When the police contacted Jones Brothers, uh, and this was the manufacturer of the pajama jacket that was found on the body, they learned that uh, the company had only used the pattern in fabric since late 1908, which allowed them to date the remains to the period that Crippen definitely owned the home. Bell also had a scar on her lower abdomen, according to medical records, and that same scar was found on one piece of the body that was discovered in the shallow grave in the cellar. And those medical examinations of that body part revealed hyocene in the flesh and on january 15th 1910 dr crippen buys five grains of this drug uh, if hyocene is used in large quantities it can cause uh, delusions a reduction in cognitive function difficulty remembering events and even death and looking back bell's confusion during a music hall ladies guild meeting just a few days after this purchase might suggest that she had ingested a small amount of hyacine dr Kirpin's strategy might have involved giving his wife hyacine in increasing amounts to simulate a natural cause of death by expressing his concern about his wife's health earlier he already sets the stage uh, for this he might have even attempted to administer that final lethal dose to her on the evening of January 31st, but we know that she somehow survives. Perhaps this might have forced him to turn to a more brutal method of murder. Unfortunately, we're just not going to know what actually happened that evening to cause Bell's death. Ethel is put on trial for being an accessory to murder on October 25th, and she's found not guilty. Crippen's death sentence is upheld after a second appeal on his behalf was denied. 
and 48-year-old Crippen is executed by hanging in Pentville on November 23, 1910. His final wish was to be interred in an unmarked grave with a picture of Ethel and some of her letters, and his final wish was granted. And you'd think that would be where the story ends. But instead, we have an update all the way in 2007. Because according to forensic scientist David Foran of Michigan State University in October of 2007, the remains discovered beneath Crippen cellar floor may not have been remains of his wife, Belle. So he claims that three of Belle's relatives were found by researchers using genealogy, and these relatives were great nieces. So researchers were able to compare their DNA to DNA collected from a microscope, microscope slide that had flashed from the torso in Crippen cellar by using mitochondrial DNA haplotype that they provided. I'm not used to having to say all of these scientific words. So the original remains were also examined using a Y chromosome testing with a high level of sensitivity, which revealed that the flesh sample on the slide was male. This same team also claimed that the scar discovered on the belly of the torso, which the prosecution said was the same scar Bell was known to have had in the original trial, was misidentified. The researchers discovered hair follicles in the tissue, which are not expected to be present in scars. And this was a medical fact that Crippen's uh, defense team used in their case. The Journal of Forensic Sciences published their study in its August 2010 issue. But this new scientific proof of Crippen's innocence has been contested. In the Times, journalist David Aronchvich uh, wrote, As to the body being male, well, the American team was using a special technique that is very new and done only by this team and working on a single century-old slide described by the team leader as a less-than-optimal sample. So I, it's up to you how credible you find this new forensic evidence. Um, it's very much up for debate. Today, the Metropolitan Police Crime Museum has preserved remnants of blonde hair found in curlers from the crime scene. Uh, but after reviewing the case, the UK's Criminal Cases Review Commission declared in December of 2009 that the Court of Appeal would not entertain the request for a posthumous pardon for Crippen. So that actually does bring us to the end of the life and potential crime of Dr. Crippen. And like so many other infamous cases from history, this case has been immortalized in novels, a musical, TV episodes, and radio programs. But after all of these years, all we know for certain is that after January 31st, 1910, Belle just vanishes, leaving her loved ones to wonder what truly happened. And that is the end of episode 10 of historical true crime and thank you so much for listening i want to give a special shout out to one of historical true crime's biggest fans jen thank you so much for listening uh, and we really appreciate all of your support if you enjoyed this episode remember to review rate subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts if you want to leave us any feedback, give us a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod or send us an email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark episode from history. We'll see you then.